This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Stephen Moore, author of the new book, Moore vs. Krugman. Steve is the Distinguished Visiting Fellow, Project for Economic Growth at the Heritage Foundation. Previously, he wrote on economic matters and public policy for the Wall Street Journal and was a member of the journal's editorial board. Steve's prior books include an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of states, how taxes, energy, and worker freedom change everything, and who's the fairest of them all, the truth about opportunity, taxes, and wealth in America. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me. Steve, the first question hanging over this book that I have, especially in context of an election where we've seen a candidate emerge on the Republican side whose views are certainly heterodox and counter to traditional views on economic matters that conservatives usually take, and on the other side with a socialist and Hillary Clinton, how do we as free marketeers make capitalism good again and socialism bad? Well, you know, when I debated Paul Krugman, who's one of the kind of leading um, liberal economists in this country and uh, writes for the New York Times, and uh, as you know, Ben, I was the uh, chief economics writer for the Wall Street Journal for 10 years, so it was sort of Wall Street Journal versus New York Times, and we really clashed over this idea about whether socialism or capitalism makes more sense for America, and to me, it's, it's not a tough debate because if you look throughout history, you know, free market capitalism has has um, defeated um, socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it, in every instance. And you look around the world today at what's happened in the socialistic countries, whether it's Greece or whether it's Argentina or Venezuela or France or whether it's what's happening in Puerto Rico now with the bankruptcies or whether it's uh, my home state of Illinois or Detroit. All of these places that try to use big government as the solution to their economic problems, they fall into huge uh, disarray and economic destruction and bankruptcy. And how many times do we have to learn that lesson before we acknowledge that free market capitalism, uh, and with the emphasis on free market, because capitalism without free markets doesn't work very well. But if we move in that direction, you know, we could see a real economic revival in this country. Now, I know this is more of a political question than a policy question, but what would your message be to those who are on the other side of this, besides pointing to examples in the world of how socialism and central planning generally fail every time they're practiced and freedom works? What would be your message, your best pitch to the American public at large to convert them to be on our side or at least get them thinking about free market principles? Well, I think it's it's so evident in everything that's around us. I mean, you look at the you know, the iPod, or you look at the uh, iPhone, or you look at Google, or you look at, you know, successful companies like FedEx, or on and on down the list, McDonald's. Um, all of these countries, companies are successful because they innovate, they have, uh, they operate in a country that has you know, free markets and they can sell the product because if you build a better hamburger or build a better, you know, piece of software in this country, you can get rich. And you look at people like Bill Gates, who's arguably the richest person in the world. Uh, he's obviously worth tens of billions of dollars, but look at all of the wealth that he has created for people all over the planet. Um, you know, and that that didn't happen by accident, Ben. It, the, the way these great products get in, invented and put into the marketplace is through the free enterprise system. And that is so frustrating. I mean, think about this. What did the communists or the socialists ever invent? 
you know, what did they, how, what, how do they innovate? They, they just copycat off of what we do. And, and so we need to keep this system alive. And I would make a, one other point, this kind of moral case for capitalism, which is that, you know, um, that we want in this country everyone to have a, an opportunity to realize their whole full human potential whatever that might be, whether it's in music or the arts or whether it's in sports or whether it's in business, uh, whether it's in academia, you know, we strive for excellence and we strive to be the best we can be. And capitalism really provides you that opportunity. So in socialistic countries, they tell you where you're going to be. You know, they're gonna, they tell you where you're going to work and they tell you, um, you know, how much you're going to make. And they don't allow these decisions to be made voluntarily between uh, an employer and employee. Related to what your view is of economics and also the, the moral arguments, one key issue that you debate with Paul Krugman as, as illustrated in Moore versus Krugman is the most recent recession, which I would argue, and I imagine you would agree too, we haven't really recovered from in over eight years. Qu question on that. What would you say is the verdict on the policies that were tried of the Obama administration and even beginning with the Bush administration? And conversely, what do you think about the way that Harding handled the recession of 1920 to 1921 as an alternative model to that? Well, it's a tough sell for the Obama administration or at this time Hillary Clinton to say, you know, we saved the world or, or the economic uh, crusaders who, you know, found a way to save capitalism and so on, because just look at the voters and listen to what they're saying right now in the year 2016. They're saying, boy, hope and change didn't work out very well. Uh, two out of three Americans think America is on the wrong path, not the right path to success. And there is a great deal of uh, financial um, stress that Americans are under. That's the result of eight years of Obama's socialistic experiment with respect to Obamacare, with respect to borrowing uh, $8 trillion, with respect to high taxes on the rich, minimum wage increases. The whole liberal playbook was thrown at this recession. And this recession and this recovery have been the weakest recovery ever, at least, well, at least going back to the Great Depression 75 years ago. So um, it's hard. It's a hard case that Paul Krugman had to say, gee, you know, things worked out so well. Now, what Paul Krugman says is we didn't borrow enough money. We didn't spend enough money. We didn't print enough money. And, I, you know, as I say in the, in the, um, in the book, wait a minute. How can anybody say eight, borrowing $8 trillion wasn't enough? Do, do people really think we would have had prosperity if we you know, borrowed 10 or $12 trillion? And when does this madness end? Um, so I think that there is a kind of rediscovery of, of free market capitalism. People are looking objectively at what happened when Barack Obama came in office. And it's true that he inherited a, quite a mess, no doubt about that. It was one of the worst crises we had in this country that he inherited. But he hasn't dealt with it very well. And you mentioned what happened in 1920 and 21 when we had actually um, a very terrible recession and at that time the, the president was um, Warren Harding and Harding basically said that the economy will heal itself and boy did it we, we had the roaring 20s we had one of the great periods of prosperity so sometimes doing nothing can be substantially better than doing the wrong thing year after year after year where we borrowed and we printed and we spent and we taxed 
One particular part of that Harding policy that I've always found interesting is that Harding actually advocated for, and we actually did, raise interest rates in a time of recession, which runs counter to everything that we've ever heard about what you're supposed to do during a recession. And interest rates come up in your conversation or your debate with Paul Krugman, and and you differed on the matter a little bit. Given that interest rates are a price, just like any other price in an economy, it's the cost of money. Why should we actually be centrally planning interest rates? And what would you say are the long-term consequences of us having had 0% interest rates and now slightly above 0% interest rates for such an extended period of time? Well, that that's a big question. I think the real uh, thrust of the question you're asking is, you know, what should be the role of our monetary authority, our Federal Reserve uh, Board? And I've always believed that we should have rules. Uh, we should have a rule-based system and not put all this power in the hands of Janet Yellen or Brent Bernanke or Alan Greenspan or Paul Volcker or whoever it might be that's running the Fed. You know, that the, we need to have all the economic players in the country, all 320 million of us, we all need to know what the rule is. We Just tell us what the rule is. Don't make us guess what you're going to do. And I think what the Fed should be doing uh, with interest rates is set interest rates and set the flow of money at a pace that keeps the dollar strong and stable. You know, we want the dollar, the currency, to retain its value over time. That's why we have currencies. Uh, you know, that from your Economics 100 course, that a currency should retain its value. And if you have high inflation or deflation, the, the value of the dollar fluctuates, and then it's very difficult, as my friend Steve Forbes to say, it's like using a ruler, and one day the ruler is 12 inches, and the next day it's 13 inches, and the next day it's 11 inches. Well, how long is a put? <laughs> and that's the same problems we run into our monetary system. So whether it's moving towards some kind of a gold-backed system or uh, you know, using a commodity basket um, would be, I think, much better because then everybody knows what the rules are. You take speculation out of the game. Uh, and you know, Paul Krugman says, all you have to do to create prosperity is just keep printing more and more money, you know, flowing more dollars into the economy. Well, if it were that easy, then you know, Argentina and Bolivia, Mexico would be the richest countries in the world because all they do is print money. Yeah, Zimbabwe would be looking pretty good too. That's <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> now, one other one other issue that you delve into in the book with Krugman, and this is relating to the recovery, is the idea that unemployment rates have steadily dropped over the last eight years. Now, unemployment rates have dropped, but the number of people in the workforce has dropped significantly as well. And we now have over 90 million people out of the workforce. So what is the real unemployment rate and what should Americans actually look towards as proxies for what the labor picture looks like? That's uh, a great question. And look, the, the one area where Obama has a pretty, um, you know, not a terrible record is unemployment. We have seen an increase in jobs and we've seen sustained job growth, but although it's much weaker than we would normally get, you know, if we'd had the pace of job growth that we had under Reagan, we probably have um, about seven or eight million more people working today. Um, so, But we are creating jobs and actually for anyone out there with a legitimate skill and talent, you know, there are jobs out there. But the problem hasn't been so much been um, the number of people who don't have jobs, although there are a lot of those. I think the problem is also that wages have been flat. So people feel like they're, you know, on a treadmill and they're running, running faster and faster and faster and faster and they're not getting ahead. They're not moving 
forward at all. And in fact, for many Americans, their wages have been falling. And one of the ironies of Obama's policies, they've all been oriented towards um, trying to reduce income disparities and the gap between the rich and the poor. But guess what? All of Obama's state as central planning policies have actually made income disparities wider. So, you know, the, the gulf between the rich and poor has actually grown more significant under o Obama because you know, working class people have gotten the shaft with these policies. There just aren't the high paying jobs that there weren't once were in this country. Shifting to health care, uh, there was a news report today showing that in several states, basically folks are only going to have one option in terms of health care because lots of the big insurers are finding that it literally doesn't pay. It's not economically viable to provide health insurance in certain states, uh, contrary to what we were promised about what Obamacare would look like. Paul Krugman says in the book, and I quote here, the biggest reason healthcare costs rise is that medical innovation keeps on delivering new things we can do, unquote. To me, that strikes me as the most economically illiterate thing that you can ever argue because when you produce more things and you innovate, the prices generally go down. So why haven't we seen that in healthcare and why do you think that healthcare costs continue to rise? Well, Ben, you're right that, you know, innovation actually leads to lower health care costs and it leads to much better health outcomes. And so you look at things like, uh, you know, new drugs or vaccines for whether it's stroke or heart disease or cancer treatments and so on. And those those treatments tend to be much less costly than, you know, really expensive surgery and so on. So um, you're right. Innovation. It was what we want more than anything in healthcare because it drives down costs, number one, but more importantly, it leads to much improved health. And that's what we're after with healthcare, right? Is health. Sometimes we lose sight of that. I mean, that's why this idea let's make sure everyone's insured with healthcare. There's a big difference between insuring someone from healthcare and making sure they're getting good medical care. You know, what Obama did under Obamacare was he just dramatically raised the number of people who are on Medicaid. Well, guess what? It turns out Medicaid is a very good way to improve health because Medicaid is a terrible uh, way to cover people. Um, a lot of um, experiments have shown that um, you know people on Medicaid don't have any better health outcomes than people who don't have any health insurance at all. So what we want to make sure is that we're improving people's health, and the way to do that is through innovation and through competition. And uh, I believe that we really run healthcare and we pay for healthcare in such a dysfunctional way in America. It should be based on true insurance, where upfront costs for things like going in for a checkup or a you know dental exam or something like that. Those are cost out cause those are paid for by people when they go just like when you pay your grocery bill. But if you have a major expense, you know, like you have need major surgery or something of that nature, then you have the insurance to cover for that. We don't have that kind of system and that's why you don't have enough competition. And, and incidentally, I think you're right. We are gonna the the end game of Obamacare has always been to end up with a single-payer system, a socialized health care system. And I think Obama was strategic. He felt like, well, Obamacare will just be the middle step to get us to socialized medicine when what we really need in health care is much more competition and consumer-driven um, financial decisions. And unfortunately, of course, it's going to be the market that gets blamed for the lack of health insurance options, and the government will be the monopolist that can save us. That's the, the irony of it. Yeah, well, that was by design. I mean, 
we all knew this, that Obamacare was designed to fail. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why I don't have any sympathy for the health insurance companies. Because, as you know, Ben, the biggest cheerleaders for Obamacare were the insurance companies. Because they oh, this is wonderful. Obamacare is going to provide us with all these new customers. What they didn't realize, you don't want to get in bed with the devil. Because what's going to happen is that they're going to destroy you. And then, you know, as prices go up, they're going to say, oh, these greedy insurance companies, we have to get rid of them. And that's right. We, If we stay on the course right now, we're on. We have either two choices. One is we have to throw out the system and really move towards free market health care. Or number two, we're going to have to have price controls and we're going to have to have a single payer system, one size fits all. And not only is that going to uh, be expensive, but it's also going to be very deleterious to the people's health and finding the cures you know, for cancer and multiple sclerosis and AIDS and Alzheimer's and all the killer diseases that still cause human suffering. You alluded earlier to uh, the idea that wages have been relatively stagnant. And one of the historical narratives that Paul Krugman brings up in your debate is the idea that in the 30 years after World War II, when labor played a bigger role in the private sector workforce, that basically everything was rosy, that the economy grew uh, at a staggering height and living standards went up and wages went up, et cetera, et cetera. What, can you debunk that narrative about it being thanks to government intervention and powerful labor unions that we had prosperity after World War II? Well, you know, the government was about half the size after World War II than it is today. So, you know, the, if you, we didn't have uh, much of a social security system. We didn't have Medicare. We didn't have Medicaid. We didn't have Obamacare. We didn't have all these massive payroll taxes and so on. So, you know, you want to go back to the 19, late 40s and 50s, you know, we were spending as a percent of our GDP half of what we spend today. So I, ne I never could understand liberals who say that was the golden age. Well, okay, if it was the golden age, then let's go back to government spending, you know, 15% of our GDP, not 30% of our GDP. Let's get rid of all the social programs. Let's get rid of all the welfare programs. And, and uh, look, I think welfare is killing us. I mean, we've got here we are in the, what's supposed to be the seventh year of an expansion and recovery, and we still have 40 million people on food stamps. And that tells you a lot about how weak this recovery has been and how uneven it's been. We're the only people, ironically, under Obama that have done better are people in the top 10%, but yet the design was to make sure that we equalized income, that we narrowed the gaps. We haven't narrowed the gaps, we've increased them. The, the so-called Gini uh, coefficient, which is the way that liberals standardly measure um, income inequality, has gone up every year under Obama. There's no, there's no evidence that we've actually made inequality uh, less of a problem. We've made more of a problem with these socialistic policies. You, you mentioned there uh, the welfare state and entitlements are a big part of that. It's been reported that you are advising uh, the Trump camp on a tax plan going forward. Can you have fundamental tax reform and thus growth that will matter if we don't deal with entitlements as well? well you have to do both, but I think getting tax reform would be enormously beneficial. I estimate, Ben, that you know we, right now we're growing at a little less than 2% per year, which is really pathetic. And if we could get that growth rate up to just 3%, which would just be sort of average, um, you know, you're going to um, 
have a lot more people working and you're going to have a lot more deficit reduction because when more people work, they pay taxes and when businesses make more money, they pay taxes. Um, we have to get the economy moving again to restore the kind of prosperity we had in the 1980s and 1990s. And that was driven largely by low tax rates, free trade policies, and governmental control of the, of the spending. We've lost those things. We've lost um, control of spending. We, we don't have any debt limits. We, we don't have any uh, limits on uh, how, the complexity of the tax code. So if I were king, I would, I would really make tax reform my first priority, and then I would deal with the other problem that you mentioned, Ben, which is these enormous entitlement programs. And on that, what I believe we ought to do on Social Security is just have a system of personal retirement accounts where you know instead of putting that 15% of every paycheck into this you know black hole of social security you actually put it in an individual account that says Ben Weingarten on it and the mine says Steve Moore on it and it's in my account and I own it and over 40 or 50 years of working I'm going to be a millionaire you're going to be a millionaire and then we'll have plenty of money for retirement and to take care of our kids You've seen sort of how the sausage is made in Washington, and I'm sure been involved in trying to craft a number of plans with respect to the tax code. Do you see any way that politicians would ever go about basically getting rid of subsidies and loopholes within the tax code so that it truly is a fair playing system, equal for all peoples, with lower <laughs> rates as well, which expands the base and also gets rid of the cronyism that's built into the system? Do you think that's feasible? I do. <laughs> you may call me a dreamer, Ben, but I think we can do this. And I've devoted most of my 30-year career in politics and policy to getting this done. Um, but I do think that Americans are so disgusted with the complexity of the tax system, the fact that the economy isn't growing nearly fast enough, that people haven't seen a wage increase in 15 years, um, that there is a... There is a uh, a rage that's boiling over, and rightfully so, all across America. It's what's caused the Trump phenomenon, is people think that the political system is rigged, that the only people who benefit are the political insiders and the rich. And um, I think if you vastly simplify the tax system, get rid of a lot of the loopholes that were put in by lobbyists, and make the system really simple and pro-growth, you're going to have a lot, millions more people working. They're going to finally have higher incomes. And we're going to roll over the lobbyists because the lobbyists are the ones who don't want to fix the tax system. That's how they make their money. Mm -hmm. And lastly, uh, in your plan, your plan and Art Laffer's plan for Donald Trump, since we talked about um, money before and sound money and the like, obviously inflation itself is the quote-unquote invisible tax. Will yeah. that be a part of any plan that you propose? Sound mm -hmm. money? or dealing with inflation generally? Well, what we want to see is some kind of rule, a rule-based system where the Fed doesn't just make it up as it goes along, as it's been doing for the last 15, 20 years, but actually is anchored on, you know, whether it's the price of gold or whether it's the price of all commodities or some other rule, so that everyone knows what it is. That, that is a central component. You know, our laugher, my uh, mentor, as I said, there's four pillars for economic growth. One is low tax rates. A second is uh, the light t touch of regulation, getting government off the back of business. The third is um, you know, uh, free trade. And the fourth is sound money, where you have, um, you know, you have a, a system where um, the, the dollar is strong and stable. And if you have all those in place, you're going to have a, a booming economy. I, I do believe, Matt Ben, that if we do even half the things I'm talking about, move away from Krugman economics more towards, you know, Reaganomics, 
and Trumponomics or whatever you want to call it, you're going to have the potential to see this economy really take off and we get back to 4% rates of growth, which will solve a lot of these other problems that Americans are concerned about today. The name of the book is Moore versus Krugman, and we've been speaking with its author, Stephen Moore. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.